Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jacob Barrett, and today I have the pleasure to be talking with Jeffrey Scholes about his recent book, Christianity, Race, and Sport, that came out in May 2021 with Rutledge. Jeff, welcome to the podcast, and thanks for joining us. Ah, Thank you so much for having me, Jacob. So the first thing I wanted to talk to you about um, is how did this book project come about? Um, and beyond just, you know, seeing the light of day and having people read it, what do you hope that um, the book project adds to conversations around sport, race, and religion, kind of as these, as you talk about it a little bit, these individual conversations that it seems like you're wanting to pull together? Yeah, uh, you know, I've I've been writing on the relationship between religion and sport for a bit um, before I started working on this book. Um and it it had become clear to me before this book, even uh, even thinking about it, that the role of race in sport and in religion, perhaps usually considered separate discourses from each other, um, hadn't really been done or the three hadn't really been put together. So, um, I mean, one of the goals of the book was to add what I considered to be a very needed dimension to the kind of sub-discipline of religion and sport in which I belong. Um, so that's a part of it. I, I was, uh, I, I wrote a um, piece, an essay in one of those Oxford handbooks um, and I was asked to, uh, it was actually on race and religion in the United States. And since I write on religion and sport, it, it nicely, uh, strongly encouraged me to write something that put the three together. So that was really the beginning. And as writing, you know, like a lot of us can probably relate to it, it just was clear that there could be a quote book in there. <laughs> um, and so that then began uh, me thinking about different kinds of, as 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 you may suggest later, kind of episodes um, to, to draw on where the three do in fact come together. So part of it is adding to the subdiscipline, but another part of it is um, just the exclusion of race when talking about religion and sport separately or together is um, just something that I believe could not be left out any longer. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Is there, I'm unfamiliar with um, kind of sports studies as a, a field of study, are there conversations within sports studies about race and sport? Because, you know, from religious studies, there's religion and race. And, you know, you're part of a group talking about religion and sport. Is it that like race and sport weren't being talked about together? Or was that somehow the three weren't coming together? Right. No, race and sport have been talked about for a very long time uh, in academia and elsewhere. And of course, as you're saying, race and religion have as well. So it really was... Um, putting again, like you say, uh, the the three of them together, or adding one of the three to kind of triangulate the, the 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 discourse, because those talking about race and religion don't really talk about sport that much, and those talking about race and sport don't talk about religion that much, and those talking about religion and sport don't talk about race that much. So I guess I viewed as my task to try to put the three together. Yeah. Um, one of the things that you explain in the book is that. Um, you're interested in examining what you call, quote, the religion of whiteness. Um, can you explain what you mean by this and how the religion of whiteness differs from if we were just talking about white religion or, you know, just Christianity? Like, how is religion of whiteness 
something different. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm drawing pretty exclusively from um, the work of W.B. Du Bois uh, in his The Souls of White Folk, which came out about 17, 18 years after the, his great essay, The Souls of Black Folk. Um, in it, The Souls of White Folk came out in 1920. And The Souls of Black Folk, as many know, is really talking about kind of the white gaze and its effects upon uh, African-American psychology with double consciousness and all that. Um, and then he really shifts upon reflection later on in this essay um, to talk much more about the, the white soul and not necessarily the black soul. And in some ways, the black gaze upon uh, what he's seeing as Martin Luther King Jr. certainly talks about, you know, 40 years later as kind of com complicitness um, in, in, in systematic Jim Crow racism at the time for, for W.B. Du Bois. Um, but when he talks about, say, for instance, this religion of, of whiteness, he's not just talking about, say, white supremacy or even just episodes of, of, of maltreatment. I mean, he's really talking about the good in, in religious terms and other terms equated to whiteness and therefore the, the white soul um, not with color on it, but the white soul in all of its manifestations and cultural effects is is that which is good, and therefore the non-white soul. And in particular, he's thinking about um, African Americans and their quote-unquote souls, if they even have one, are uh, corrupt, um, spawn of Satan, that kind of of, of language. So he's really challenging um, the ways in which this quote-unquote whiteness becomes a type of religion when you invoke certain kinds of theological terms to classify it. And then he somewhat equivocates, um, or the various, uh, at times he uses white religion and the religion of whiteness somewhat interchangeably, but really when he's talking about white religion, he's talking about this um, authority that many whites believe is given to them to subjugate, subordinate non-whites. So in the case of religion of whiteness, there's more kind of weird racist theological propositions put forth. And then the effects of that is in this kind of notion of white religion as that which is actionable and, and, and that which somehow weirdly spiritually justifies uh, certain kinds of, of racist behaviors. And so I so I I really use Du Bois's concepts and it's been discussed uh, with some frequency in the, you know, succeeding 80 years, uh, but not too much. But I really like the way he he talked about it. He kind of ratchets up the language of just, say, for instance, whiteness or white supremacy to use religion with it. Yeah. Um, no, thank you for that. I we read we read that piece in my um, method and theory course last semester. Um, or last year, I guess, and I feel like I I now have a better understanding of it than just try, <laughs> trying to make my way through it. So thank you. Ah, well, you're welcome. <laughs> um, one of the one of the other things that I really appreciated about the book um, was the attention you paid to how whiteness and Christianity order black bodies, um, and especially you know that kind of the way that um bodies are ordered and governed is something that I'm interested in in my own work. Um, but I thought that your um, addition of sport into that conversation and a focus on Black athletes was really, um, was really apt and really important because, you know, so much of sport is about the actual physical bodies of people, right? Um, and so I think this conversation about the ordering of 
black bodies by whiteness by christianity in sport um was really interesting to me can you speak a little bit about um why these or why talking about ordering discourses were important for your argument yeah i uh, i think as as many have argued i mean religion's prime function no, whether it's christianity or other religions as well uh, at least socially, politically, economically, is to, is to order or place order upon what I often call in the book kind of perceived sites of chaos. Um, I mean, you could go back to the, the creation narrative in Genesis 1, where there's an ordering of a kind of a chaotic void and go from there, right? Um, when you add uh, race into it, certainly this ordering function of, let's just say, Christianity in the United States, but you could say it elsewhere and with other religions as well, um, takes on certainly kind of a, a, a racist tone that has obviously power behind it and therefore perceived sites of chaos are those often where uh, people of color are, <laughs> no matter what they're doing, no matter what is being said. And and obviously slavery is an extreme example of it, but you you saw it through Jim Crow and you certainly see it today as well as we, in fact, the, the writing of this book was taking place during the, the murder of George Floyd. Um, so just, you know, one more example of it. Um, I think with sport, what's interesting is that it's typically conceived of as what's sometimes called a colorblind meritocracy, i.e. it does not matter what the color of your skin is. It doesn't even supposedly matter what gender you are. If you can play and you can contribute in some major, you can make the team, you can start, you can, there's nothing stopping you from achieving anything that a white athlete could. This has been the narrative for over a century, century and a half, really at least in the United States and, and elsewhere as well. Um, however, what we see throughout United States history and so many other cases is that sport is not a colorblind meritocracy. And it's another area where when you don't, for instance, think that a kind of ordering would take place, it certainly does. Um, and you can date it back to all kinds of uh, examples in sporting history in the United States. Um, you know, there was a preponderance of, of black jockeys in the late 19th, early 20th centuries until they started becoming successful. And then it was banned. Um, you know, Jack Johnson, the great heavyweight champion of the early part of the 20th century, African-American from uh, Galveston, um, you know, they were looking for the great white hope to beat him, found one. The great white hope got absolutely destroyed in Reno, Nevada in a, a highly watched match. And then there were tactics and strategies used to order that black body. These are historic examples. But I was I was interested in that, obviously, but also in perhaps more subtle ways, A, that racism is being expressed in the United States today and in the more recent past, and how that uh, that kind of ordering and controlling of black bodies, despite claims of a colorblind meritocracy, are still every much as in, fact as in effect as they were 50, 100 years ago. So it's kind of like sport provides this surprising example of the kind of ordering that perhaps you expect in the you know early part up to the mid part of the 20th century at lunch counters and fronts of buses and churches and country clubs and colleges, but not in the sports world. Well, it certainly exists, existed and exists in the sports world as well. Yeah. Yeah. And that sport isn't just a isn't just the site of entertainment or the site of, you know, fun, enjoyment, physical activity that like people consume it as, but that it 
that it is part of this equation of you know exerting power over specific groups of people i would even assert if you don't mind um it, you know you can take examples like say for instance the the nfl draft which is now Stri almost strictly for entertainment it is an event in and of itself the drafting of of college players primarily in the nfl um and it 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 should would potentially strike a lot of people watching that as it looks to some extent like what you may imagine of of the slave trade um and it, it, it's been commented and it's almost exclusively seemingly black bodies that are being judged strictly on the whole for physical attributes to be judged and then in a sense purchased so um you know there are examples still of this certainly in sport um that that continue for entertainment purposes and perhaps that somehow kind of camouflages potentially a long history of this kind of treatment of of black bodies in particular by white owners and managers yeah yeah that's really interesting um one of the other things you talk about in the book is the co-constitutive nature of religion and sport um, and the necessary role that power plays in that relationship between religion and sport. Can you explain how you see religion and sport not just as connected or related or two things that we can talk about in relation to each other, but as creating one another and where power fits into that equation? Yeah, I, I think um, historically speaking, you know, if you kind of go with the old Tertullian, what hath Athens to do with Jerusalem, it happens the same thing with religion and sport. And it's been that way for a very long time. Um, there has obviously been relationships between the two. And if you just take Christianity or the earliest Christian writing, say from Paul, Paul, you know, talks about running a race in First Corinthians 9, I believe. Um, but in it, he's attempting to use sport instrumentally, right, to make a point about uh, running the spiritual race, which, you know, the prize is forever as opposed to a laurel on your head. Um, to make a, in other words, using sport to make a, a, a religious point. And so therefore there's a, a, a power differential between religion as being above and superior to the sport that Paul needs to use. That, that it continues in the pulpit, uh, you know, Billy Sunday, this famous, um, kind of post last great awakening preacher who was a former major league baseball player as well himself, but, uh, really attempted to kind of dismiss sport. The Puritans did this before him as well. So there's always been this relationship, but it's usually one of antagonism, historically speaking. Um, so putting them together in a co-constitutive way is to, to argue that not only are they in relationship, but beyond an instrumental relationship, both help shape and mold each other. And we can't really, really talk about sport without talking about the influence of religion, even in an antagonistic relationship. Oftentimes, sport develops... Uh, early on in the late 19th, early 20th century as a reaction to puritanical restrictions against certainly playing sport on Sunday, but even beyond that, that it's this idle activity that's taking you away from Bible study, blah, blah, blah. You say, they could say the same about dancing and cursing and drinking, but sport was kind of uh, lumped into all those other kinds of activities. And so sport at times involves itself in a rebellious stance over and against religion. And there's countless other ways in which religion has also been shaped by physical activity. If you look at uh, the legacy of muscular Christianity, which helped develop the YMCA in, in England in the mid part of the 19th century, and then later on in the United States, I mean, it's this odd merger of sport and religion, or at least athletic activity and religion that helps mold 
a version of Christianity, in particular for young white males. Teddy Roosevelt was way behind, all behind this, under the belief under industrial capitalism that you know white males were going to the tavern afterwards and therefore they need to bulk up. And if you can deploy a kind of made-up muscular Jesus to help support it, then in fact you can maybe help it gain steam and promote the kind of Christianity that they're wanting. So there's many, many examples of both shaping and molding, not just being in a kind of antagonistic relationship to each other. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, yeah, I think that's really interesting that it's not just, um, because, you know, you mentioned in the introduction, kind of this, the Tim Tebow moment where, you know, Tim Tebow writes John 316 on his face and that that's kind of um, the way that maybe re- we, think about religion and sports coming together and like visible moments where we see religion, where we see athletes doing religion or we see, um, you know, religion taking up sports and doing their own thing with it or whatever, but that they, I think it's what you're onto in this way that they continue to create each other through moments like that, but also through moments um, that are maybe less obvious um, as is really interesting. Yes. And I think that kind of old trope of uh, kind of wall of separation between the sacred and the secular um, helps kind of drive, uh, again, the separation to then, say, for instance, critique a Tim Tebow type athlete by saying you need to leave the religion in your home or the church or your Bible set, leave it off the field, talk about sports alone, um, or vice versa, that, hey, he's using this grandpa. Um, those kind of old ways of, of thinking about religion and sport, to my mind, have been dead a long time ago. And so I think this book was an attempt with, along with race, to continue to kind of argue that both are, again, kind of constituting each other as we go along, along with many other institutions and things we can talk about. But I'm, of course, focused on religion and sport. Right. Um, So turning to kind of the the structure of the book, um, there's, it's, you mentioned earlier, it's episodic. So there's six chapters that kind of hone in and focus on different um, athletes and different moments throughout history um, from a range of different sports um, and moments to kind of think about the ordering that the religion of whiteness is doing on Black bodies. Um, I wanted to see if you had a specific chapter, particular chapter that you're fond of, or you find um, especially interesting or useful and kind of dive into it a little bit here about um, how you picked the example, what you're trying to do with it. Um, yeah. I mean, all six chapters are equal. I'm kidding. No. How can I pick one possibly? Um, you know, uh, the the first chapter comes to mind. I, I, I try to kind of go chronologically with the chapters, although there's there's a little bit out of order or some overlap. But uh, I, I focus in the first chapter on Jackie Robinson, um, the, the great multi-sport athlete who, of course, becomes famous for um, breaking the, quote, color barrier in all major sports in the United States in 1947 with the uh, Brooklyn Dodgers. Um, and, and obviously the, the, the legacy that he has uh, built up in Major League Baseball and other sports and he's lauded as a Martin Luther King uh, Jr. type figure. What I was um, interested in were some more recent biographical treatments of Jackie Robinson, in particular uh, regards his his faith. And he was a very uh, faithful person. He grew up in the Methodist Church, the AME in particular in California. 
um, and 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 maintain his faith throughout his life until his death in 1972. But the ways in which some of these authors were attempting, what I argue again is to kind of order a uh, the reality of Jackie Robinson throughout his his life by reducing Jackie Robinson's will, his strength, his bravery in the face of racism that he faced considerably in his army career and his baseball career and after his baseball career was over by reducing it down to his faith. In other words, it was simply his Christian faith that allowed him to quote, turn the other cheek when supposedly branch Ricky, the general manager, of the Brooklyn Dodgers back in the forties um, asked him to, that could be an apocryphal story. We're not quite sure if it ever happened, but it made it into the movie 42. So I guess it's, I guess it really did happen. Um, but, but nonetheless, this is this retelling uh, a kind of uh, selective history and biography of Jackie Robinson tells us, at least me, the the, the ways in which the reality, again, I can talk in a minute about the reality of, of who Jackie Robinson really was and how his faith intersected with other things that these authors um, either downplayed or ignored altogether is a, still a type of ordering of a very famous black body who, who, who played baseball. Yeah, and then it becomes like, the, I don't know, like the caricature of or the um, like palatable version of the story. No question. No question. Palatable in particular to white audiences um, that prefer to think of Jackie Robinson as kind of the quintessential Jesus type figure, again, who turned the other cheek, who, uh, you know, didn't resist uh, racism and led by example as opposed to being quote unquote uppity or some other form of that. Um, but you see throughout his life, um, he was a lifelong Republican, but he was more in the vein of the Nelson Rockefeller Republican in the 1950s and 60s uh, and kind of early Nixon. Um, but when Goldwater rises up and becomes a Republican nominee in 1964, he says, I can no longer be, I mean, you know, with the sudden strategy in, in Goldwater, uh, Jackie Robinson now hold, said, now hold on a second. These are not the kinds of values. Now you've made it about race. Um, and so therefore, Jackie Robinson spoke much more publicly after the mid 1960s up until his death about linking his version of Christian faith towards social justice for African-Americans. And he took many, many steps in his in his public life um, to, to, to do exactly that. And he swore off the kinds of portrayals of him, uh, of this kind of soft, meek, humble uh, Christian that alone helped him endure the kind of racism. And as opposed to, say, enduring it, he fought it all along the way. And even you could even say, I, I make mention in the book, his Jackie Robinson's own autobiography, he mentions the word God one time. Mm -hmm. So to say that his Christian faith was the, the sine qua non of his entire life uh, really, truly belies Jackie Robinson's own life and his own expression of it in, in the form of an autobiography. Yeah, yeah. Um, turning to one of the later chapters, um, I found you dedicate chapter five to um, looking at Serena Williams um, and a confrontation between her and an umpire um, at the 2018 US Open. Um, I wanna hear you talk a little bit about this chapter, what you argue um, and why Serena Williams was a useful example for you. But I also wanna talk about um, how you see gender fitting into the this conversation that you're weaving together with Christianity, race and sport. Um, as you know, Serena Williams is 
um, a famous woman athlete, and and she's the the one mentioned um, or given kind of centered in in the book. So yeah, I want to see what you think about that. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's probably the most kind of speculative chapter I think in the book. Um, in that there's there's some I won't call them flights of fancy, but at the very least I I, I stretch a little bit of interpretation with what I believe is is possibly going on to not only help explain Serena's reaction in the final of the 2018 U.S. Open, but earlier uh, events on and off the court um, that have made her an object of scorn for a lot of critics uh, uh, around her. And um, obviously she has a tremendous fan base. I mean, I consider her perhaps the greatest athlete in the United States American history, certainly the greatest tennis player uh, to my mind. At the same time, too, uh, one of the themes I kind of run through that chapter is this issue of surveillance. Um, Serena, uh, like all black bodies, and in particular when you're in the public eye via sports, there's a level of surveillance that white people certainly outside the public eye just really don't have a, a clue about, myself included. In this, um, but I uh, so uh, what I what I do when I talk about the, the tennis umpire, I kind of position him and and tennis umpires in general, male or female, um, as a kind of unique surveyor uh, of the game itself. They're positioned above the court, unlike other referees or umpires in other sports. Um, it's a male referee in the case of the 2018 U.S. Open final. Um, there's a a type of surveillance on. Uh, her getting advice from her coach in the stands, which, by the way, every single tennis player does, to call it out in the second set of a, of a Grand Slam final against Serena in particular was particularly egregious. Um, obviously, some of the things that Serena said and acted, you know, okay, maybe she could have acted differently. At the same time, too, what I try to kind of want to make clear is that it's not just she should get a, a, a pass for this behavior because, say, for instance, she's a Black woman, but the level of surveillance that her and her sister and her family have been under for decades before this, uh, under really kind of a white male gaze. And so this adds gender into it as well. It's not just the white gaze. But you couple that with the fact that she does have this strong faith. She grew up Jehovah's Witness, uh, and she doesn't talk about it that much. But you couple that with the ways in which um, kind of African-American religion from slave days, to some extent up to the present, has had to weather a kind of white Christianity for so, so long. And therefore, there's this inner theater interiority that has developed in many and Serena has talked about this extensively and so when I titled the, the chapter the Serena Williams and her two gods there is this kind of white version of the god as represented by the tennis umpire expressed through these judgments that the umpire is laying down upon her and therefore her reaction apoplectic as it is and as it looks can help be explained a little bit more by the ways in which her own faith as a black woman is being expressed, especially one who has been criticized for her dress, for her action, for her weight, for you name it, right? The kinds of, of vitriol spewed against her by critics for decades and decades um, is just really unlike anything we've seen, certainly from a woman for a woman tennis player. And therefore, it can just help be explained, not completely excused, but help explain through a kind of theology of Serena Williams that I I um speculate a little bit on yeah yeah no and that's I the Serena Williams is probably the figure in the book that I 
had engaged with the most um just you know in in life and consuming media that talks about her and um and so i i found your treatment of her in the chapter um really great and i and i the speculation that you do i think is really interesting um thank you so much this the admittedly sport is not the the world i live in um but this good tell <laughs> the the book was um really useful it wasn't just an interesting read but um it's been really useful in some of the things that i'm thinking about and how bodies are constructed and governed and um and ordered in in that way and so i think that's a that's always kind of my sign of a of a good piece of scholarship is when it's when it's interesting because of the thing that it's talking about is interesting but the theoretical contribution is also um important and interesting and so thank you for that i'm yeah i found this really great oh you're welcome and it's if it's not useful to me as well whatever i'm trying to write then I, it's it loses steam at least the writing process so i'm glad someone besides me found it somewhat useful that's good to hear <laughs> yeah <laughs> Well, thank you so much. Is there anything else that um, you want to mention as we wrap up? I will say that, I, you know, kind of in the same vein, I'm starting a book on religion and sport fandom. Um, and this also is an attempt to kind of really, truly blur those lines between the secular and sacred. But oddly enough, there hasn't been uh, a book written on kind of the association between religion and sports fandom, aside from saying sports fans act in religious ways, sometimes to their detriment. But anyway, so that's kind of the next project. But um, yeah, no, Jacob, thank you for having me. It's been really fun. This has been great. And I look forward to the next project. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you.